a beautiful time of worship, hey? Would you agree? It was a beautiful time of worship. I will not ask you how you're doing this morning. I will ask you to agree with how beautiful worship was. And I hope you will agree. That was an incredible time we had together. And in fact, that's all that I want to talk about today is why we did what we just did. Why this has a place amongst us as we gather. And why we emphasize it the way we do as a church. And why we're lifting our hands and why we're we're shouting praises. Normally, at this time of our service, if you're new, we'd have someone hosting us. And you'd have an opportunity to give. And we'd dismiss our 7 to 12-year-olds to go up to their classrooms. But I really feel like the Lord is making a point today. And he's leading us somewhere. And um, it's no coincidence that tonight... We're starting seven days in a row of prayer and worship. Every night for seven days. And I love how we just started. Because this was, yeah. (laughs) This was not self-serving worship. This was not worship where we were like, I'm only going to lift my hands if I feel good. This was worship that just declared who he is. And that's real worship. Worship that says this is who you are despite what's going on. It It was Shirley's call to worship. No matter what anxieties are in my life, no matter what despair I might be walking through, you're worthy in it all. And as I declare your worth, it starts to change my perception. It starts to change my mind, my understanding of what I walk through. That's worship. It's a gift that God has given us, but it's also a gift that we get to give him. And we just gave our king a gift this morning. You realize that? Yeah. Let's talk about that for the next few moments. Sam, I want you to hang with me today. But if you feel like your fingers are getting tired, you can stop playing. But don't leave that seat. Band, stay close. Um, What I want to do in these next moments is set up why we're gathering for seven days straight. It's not just another thing that we do to fill our schedules or to act holy or to, to say, look what we do as a church versus what you do. It's none of that stuff. There's a reason why we do what we do. And I think the Lord has shown us over the years that we've been doing church that we want to be as intentional as possible in everything that we do so that we're not wasting time, so that it actually serves a purpose. And the greatest purpose that we can serve is to, to worship him. And so We're going to put altars through that filter today, and I pray that as we come out the other side, we'll know exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it, and in fact, that it's the greatest call of your life. You guys with me? Let's do it. Psalm 132, we're going to read this. It's 18 verses. We're going to read it together, and this is a song of ascent, and so what they would the Jews, the Hebrews would do as they were going up to Zion, they were going up to the temple, they would, they would sing this song as they went up. You know, like as the band goes marching in, like the, the, as they're going together, they would have these songs that they would sing on their way up to the temple. Not necessarily at the temple, but on their way up to the temple. Their worship started before they got there. Just leave that one there for a moment. Psalm 132, verse 1, says this, Lord, we got it? Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. 
He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. He said this, this was his vow. He said, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyelids or slumber to my, sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, for Yahweh, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah, and we came upon it in the fields of Jair. They said, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, arise, Lord, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness clothed with your righteousness, and may your faithful people sing for joy. The psalmist is saying, remember David's oath that he will not rest until he finds a place for the Lord to dwell. And then the people of Israel, God's people, grabbed hold of that vow and said, that's now our vow. So Lord, as we come and as we worship, Yahweh, as we come, proclaim your name, arise and come to the place of rest. This was the call to worship. God, would you meet us here as we worship you and lift up your name? What a beautiful illustration for us. What a beautiful picture for us today. That's what we just did. You may not consider that those to be your words, but that's our heart, is that Lord, as we lift up your praises and we lift up your name, that you would come, dwell, and find a place to rest in our midst. This was David's heart. And then it was the nation's heart. And then verse 10, it says, For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. You made a promise. And then, after David's vow, it says, Yahweh swore an oath to David. He responded, a sure oath that he will not revoke. And he said this, One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and statutes, I teach them. Then their sons will sit, on, will sit on your throne forever and ever. And who he's talking about here is Jesus. That your descendant, Jesus, will be on the throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion, Jerusalem, and he has desired it for his dwelling. Saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. And here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. And I will clothe her priests with salvation. And her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. And I will clothe his enemies with shame. But his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your presence. Thank you that what we're reading here, we just experienced. Lord, that we all in this room or online can testify that you respond to the praises of your people. That your throne is in our midst. And Lord, we as a church, we vow as a people to not rest until you have a place to dwell. So God, would you come dwell amongst us this morning? That is our heart. That we're not just gathering to feel good or to rub each other on the back. We're gathering 
around you and your presence. And so we bless you in this moment. We thank you for your word. Would you awaken our hearts to who you are today? The Holy Spirit, just show us Jesus. Pray for the love of the Father to run through this room and online. We bless you, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Can you guys say amen with me? Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Well done. You're like, okay, fine. So he doesn't ask again. These are important moments that we agree together in what is happening here. And you may be doing it in your heart, but there's a corporate expression that matters. So I want to set this up. Sam, thank you. I'm going I'm to I'm get a little more hype than that. So we're going to separate, but stay here. You're staying with me. Thank you, Sam. I want to set up the context here in which, in which this psalm is expressing, right? So there's language here. There's a heart here from David, and there's a heart here in this psalm from God. It's David's cry to God, and then it's God's response to David. And this is captured in a, in a time of Israel's history that is significant, not only to them, but so significant to us. There's a moment when... Saul was no longer king. If you know this story, he was the first king of Israel, but he did not honor God. And so God said, I can't do what I want through you. And so, so Saul was no longer king. David said, I got to go somewhere else. It's not going to be your lineage that I can do something through. And then he went and found this boy named David, son of Jesse. He was looked over. He was just a shepherd boy. And God says, this will be the king. And so Samuel, this prophet, goes and anoints him as the next king. And for 30 years, he knows this call on his life. But he's not walking in it yet until Saul dies and David becomes king. But it says that the presence of God was not honored in the time of Saul. But when David became king, he had a heart after God. And so he went and sought after the presence of God in their midst. And the presence of God was represented in this thing called the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Or the Ark of Testimony. And so in getting the presence of God to be central to Israel again, David said, I got to go get this Ark. So the Ark was actually captured for a time by the enemies of God because they thought it was a good luck token. Like they thought it was just going to bless them. So they got this Ark. They like looked inside. Their faces melted. Indiana Jones really happened. Like it was devastating to them. Their idols would fall over just like Sam sang. Like the presence of God like shook up the people that it did not belong to. And so they kind of rejected it and sent it back. They said, you can take this thing. They sent it back on a cart, and it stayed in this guy's house for a number of years, named Abinadab, and his kids, Uzzah, and a few others took care of it for all this time. And so David knows all that's going on here, and he's saying, basically, now that I'm king, the first thing I'm going to do as king is I'm going to bring the presence of God back. Like, who are the people of God without the presence of God? Like, this is the stuff that honored the Lord about David's leadership. Like, all the things that he did wrong in his life, like, he, he knew what God wanted. And he always found himself back at the place of what God desired, even if it meant denying his own desires and repenting of his sin. This was David. And so he went after it. And we know the story. I've preached through it many times. They bring the, cart, the, they bring the ark back in, but it's on a cart, Right? Just as the Philistines gave it back, it came in on a cart, 
pulled by an oxen. The oxen stumbles. This guy, Abinadab's son, he tries to stabilize the ark, and he dies. He's struck dead by God himself. Why? Because the ark itself was holy. That time, they didn't have a, a mediator. The blood of Jesus hadn't been spilt yet. And so in order to approach the ark, you had to go through all these cleansing rituals. And I've talked about this before. They had to go through all of these things in order to enter into that space. And Uzzah, thinking he was doing a favor for the ark, touched the ark and actually dishonored God in doing so. And so he dies. And so David, in his heart, wanting to bring the presence of God back, sees all of this unfold. And the scriptures say that David got upset with God. He was angry that this happened. Like, God, how, in my knowledge of you being good, in my knowledge, I want you to come back to, to, to Jerusalem. I want you to be central to everything we do. How could you respond like this by killing the guy who's just trying to help? Like, your presence is dangerous. I don't want nothing to do with it. And so he takes the ark and he sends it to the guy's house named Obed-Edom, a hero in my eyes. And it says, for three months... The ark stayed in Obed-Edom's house. Now, Obed-Edom wasn't the one. He wasn't the one. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't the one that God said had to steward the presence. But what happened over those three months? It says that Obed-Edom and his entire household was blessed by the presence of God. And so David is watching all of this unfold. The presence of God wasn't honored. I bring it back in. It devastates me that Uzzah gets killed. I reject the presence of God. And then I start to see, wow, maybe it isn't what I thought it was. Maybe the presence of God is actually a blessing and not a burden. And then all the dials for David start to click. Oh, my goodness. The literal presence of God is the greatest blessing that I could have, that we could have, that this nation could have. In fact, we cannot be who God has called us to be or destined us to be without his presence. And it starts to tick. Oh, this is not a burden. This is a blessing. And you see from there, and this is what I want to show you today, the cascade effect that happens after it clicks in David's mind that we now live in, and it's why we just lift our hands in praise. It all happened at the moment where David saw that the presence of God actually blessed a man in his entire house. It's a big deal. It changes the course of history because he caught a revelation of God and it changed everything forever. And you realize in this moment Seeing that it was a blessing, the reason why it was a burden is, is because the presence of God, the ark of God, was not carried in the prescribed way, right? It wasn't supposed to be on a cart. It was supposed to be carried by the shoulders of the Levites, and it, and it, and it didn't go about that way. Like, this is the reason why pain and suffering and heartache came as a result of the ark, because his prescribed way wasn't honored, so he understands all of this, and he gets this big epiphany, this understanding, and what he does from that point is he gathers the entire nation. He says, guys, it isn't what we thought it was. He gets everybody. He mobilizes everybody, thousands and thousands of people, and he ushers the ark back into Jerusalem. He brings the ark in, honoring the Lord every single step of the way, and we read this story in 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13 that it was this incredible celebration. 
that there was food and there was song and there was instruments and there was sacrifice and there was dancing and it was this incredible joyous occasion that came from a hard place. So he gathers the nation, he brings them back in and then this curveball comes, okay? He doesn't take the ark back to the tabernacle of Moses. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the tabernacle of Moses, we talked about it a few weeks ago. We'll throw a picture right up here. When the, the scriptures talk about the tabernacle, especially in the book of Hebrews, the thing that Jesus fulfilled by his sacrifice and with his blood was the tabernacle. Like this was the, the place that God wanted to meet with his people, but in it he expressed his utter holiness. That the only way you could meet with God in the Holy of Holies was if you were born to a certain tribe, you were a certain gender, you didn't have any diseases, that you didn't have a, a, a cripple, they didn't walk with a limp, you had to be all of these things. And, and, and only like one point out of every year could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies. It was a restricted space, the tabernacle of Moses, and God gave this entire design. It was all prescribed by Yahweh. But David didn't take it back to where it said, no, 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 come on, you're getting ahead of me. David didn't take it back to where it says the Ark of Covenant. Something clicked in his mind. Knowing that the Ark was dangerous if mishandled, he says, no, wait a minute, there's something greater at stake here. So he doesn't take it back to the tabernacle of Moses, Mount Gibeon. He takes it to another place called Zion. He takes it to Jerusalem, and at Jerusalem, he sets up a different te tent. But instead of it being like this, it looks like this. That was, there you go. <laughs> Literally, just a tent and the ark in the middle. And what he did from there was he hired thousands upon thousands of musicians and singers and psalmists to come gather around the ark of God and lift it up 24-7 worship, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know what they did? They lifted their hands. They shouted praises. They sang songs. They got on their knees and they bowed. They were a little crazy, a little bit like us. This expression of worship that we just gathered in is not a charismatic expression of worship. It's not for those who subscribe to the presence of God being amongst us and so let's be extravagant in our worship. No, it's biblical worship. David says, I understand now something about God and the way that he wants to be honored. He caught a glimpse of what was about to come and that the presence of God wasn't restricted anymore. It was for everybody and everybody. He understood something in his revelation of God, this new tabernacle. But in this time of the tabernacle of David, the scriptures say that the tabernacle of Moses was still honored. He didn't destroy the tabernacle of Moses. He just didn't take the ark back to the tabernacle of Moses. So the priests were still going through the rituals. They were still going through the sacrifices because they had to. God told them that this is the only way that they could have access to his presence. And so they still went through the rituals because God mandated it. David wasn't rebelling against God. He was seeing something greater 
than everybody else, and he stepped into it. So he didn't reject what God said, he just expanded. But we know that the tabernacle of Moses is now fulfilled in Jesus. Did you know that? The tabernacle of Moses was only a shadow made by human hands of something that exists in heaven. Meaning that because we now have access because of Jesus, the one who gave us breakthrough, we can walk into the tabernacle of Moses, so to speak, that exists in heaven. We now have free access. And this is exactly what the tabernacle of David was expressing. He was seeing something about the future of how God wanted to be with his people. That it wasn't going through all these things anymore. That there was going to be a sacrifice to end all sacrifice. And now we can freely have access to his presence and worship him in spirit and in truth. This is what David understood as he saw the Ark of the Covenant bless Obed-Edom and his entire house. So David caught a glimpse of God and responded with his own creativity and with his own excellence and with his own skill, and with his own passion, and with his own order. God didn't tell him to do this. God gave Moses instruction after instruction after instruction about how his tabernacle should be built. David said, listen, I want to do this out of my own impetus, my own desire, my own passion, and my own skill. In other words, the tabernacle of Moses was God's design to reveal his holiness to his people. But the tabernacle of David was David's response to a revelation of God's holiness. But this tabernacle wasn't somber and full of blood and sacrifice. It was full of joy and shouts of praise. The tabernacle of Moses was God's gift to Israel. But the tabernacle of David was Israel's gift to God. David said, I want to create a dwelling place for him. Remember what he said, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. This was all David's initiative. God did not tell him to do this. David saw something about Yahweh and said, this is how I want to respond to what I just saw. He said, we heard it in Ephrathah, and we came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place, and let us worship at his footstool, saying, arise, Lord, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, may your priests be clothed with your righteousness, and may your faithful people sing with joy. And then something wild happens. You know what happens? To David's good idea, to his shouts of praise, to his employing thousands of people to worship. You know what happens? God responds. And God starts declaring that this will be my dwelling place forever. The tabernacle of Moses was God's gift to Israel. The tabernacle of David was Israel's gift to God. And God responded to that gift, that free will offering of praise, and said, this gift, this space, this tent will be my dwelling place forever. And then he goes on to say, David, 
one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever, saying the Messiah will come from your lineage, that Jesus will be referred to as the son of David. This is where David would say things like this, God, you're enthroned on the praises of your people. That's why we sing songs like this, because David created a space where God is worshipped, and then the throne of God would come and dwell in that place. These aren't just cute, poetic phrases that we sing. There are literal things that happen in the history of Israel that we now participate in. That the model that David showed us is a model that we live in now, that God comes and dwells in our midst as we lift up his praises. Not because he mandated that we do it, but because it's our response to who he's revealed himself to be in our lives. This is why we worship. So we said already that the demands of the tabernacle of Moses were fulfilled in Jesus. But Hebrews tells us that it was only a shadow of the real thing. And that now we can boldly enter, like the tent of David, the tabernacle of David, we can boldly enter the throne room of grace whenever we need. This is how far ahead of his time David was. And this is what the tabernacle of David was prophetically pointing to, that all can enter at any point, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done, it's by the blood of Jesus that we can go lift up praises to God. Declare that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, and the Lord will come and make that his dwelling place. This is God's design. He said, I'm going to come, and I'm going to dwell in that place, and it will be my place forever. And then you start to see in the Old Testament these prophecies come up about how there will be a fulfillment of the tabernacle of Moses, that God will write his law, not on tablets anymore, but on hearts. So the tabernacle of Moses is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. But in Amos chapter 9, you see this. The prophet declaring by God that the tabernacle of David will be raised up again. And then in Acts 15, there's a debate of whether or not the Gentiles, you and I, can be included in the family of God. There is an understanding that only the Jews at that time, the Hebrews, the ones who were circumcised, the ones who went through all the law, all the rituals, could enter the tabernacle of Moses, which was the temple at the time. Only those people could be included in what God was doing. And then James, in Acts chapter 15, pipes up and he says, no, don't you remember in the book of Amos where God said, I will raise up again the tabernacle of David, that this will be the new thing that I'm doing, that the church will be the tabernacle of David. That what David instituted there on Mount Zion is the thing that we're now living in here. That all can come into the place where we can freely worship him as he is for who he is. This is good news. We have unrestricted access to the presence of God. And as we worship, he dwells in our midst, and he inhabits the praises of his people. So worship is our response to his worth. Thank you. 
It's what it is. It's what David caught on to, that, oh, he's not who I thought he was. He's this. And now I'm going to leverage the entire nation to tell him who he is. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you think 45 minutes of worship is a little bit much, 24-7. But here's what's wild about this, that worship is our response to his worth. His worth is objective. It never changes. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he is still worthy, which means that my worship is subjective. His worth is objective, but my acknowledgement of his worth is based on how well I'm doing that day or how good I feel or how caught on to who he is that my heart is. There are times when I don't feel like he's worthy. Would you agree? There are times when I don't feel like he's worthy. Or when I know he is, but I don't have the energy or capacity to respond. Or I'm focused on myself or other desires in life. There are times when I don't feel like worshiping. And guess what? You have the liberty and the grace to not worship. You can come and not worship. You can just show up and be, and God says, that's okay. You have access to my presence. But you will be missing out on not only giving him what he's worthy of, but what he does as he manifests his presence in your worship. I'm passionate about how God has designed our minds and our bodies and their capacity to adapt and to change. I love studying this stuff, especially when it comes to exercise and exercise physiology, like what it means to be transformed, not just in our bodies. Like you go on YouTube and you see bodybuilders or health experts say, here's my one-year transformation. And it's incredible to see how something that clicks in the mind can start to change in the body. I love this stuff, how our bodies adapt to these things. But I've come to find out that the most effective space for adaptation is when you do what you don't want to do or when you feel like you're incapable of it. When I don't feel like running is the time when I actually need to run. I'm training in that space, my body and my mind, and then I actually start to crave it. And my neurology starts to shift in that space where the first day I started running, I did not want to. But the hundredth day I'm running, I can't help but run. It's what I want to do. Well, what about our diet? First day of a diet is horrible. Then your body starts to adapt to this new change, these new nutrients that are coming in. And now your body craves this. What about prayer? It's the same thing. What about writing? What I don't want to is actually the space that I allow my brain to be transformed as I do it. You name it. I don't know what it is for your life, but every space that we don't want to do something that we know we should be doing it is an opportunity for our minds and our lives to be transformed. So when we don't worship because we don't feel like it, that's okay. 
But we're not only missing out on giving him what he's worth. We're missing out on the type of transformation that can only happen when it's connected to worship. Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. The healing and transformation you are looking for may just come through a revelation of worship. Here, I want you to catch this. David saw what the ark did in a man's house who separated himself to steward the presence of God, and he said, that's a blessing, not a burden. And when David caught hold of who God was, a revelation of who he was, and instituted this 24-hour worship, it not only changed him, it changed the nation. Not only changed the nation, it changed the course of history forever. If you think what you're going through is hardship, read the Psalms about what David went through and the hardships of his life. But what he always came back to was a heart of worship, that in my struggle, in my hardship, I'm going to lift up your name, you're going to come dwell in my presence, and my life will be changed forever. And God said, that's the design I want. That's what I'm doing, and I'm doing it forever. I will dwell in that midst. In fact, because of this revelation, your descendant will be on the throne forever, and your descendant is Jesus, and he will be called the son of David. Why? Because David knew how to worship. It transformed his heart, and it transformed his life. And guess what? There would have been an infinite number of times that David didn't want to. That he would have sulked and said, no, you're hard, God. Stay over there. I'm your chosen one. I know. Just let me do my thing. You stay over there at Obed-Edom's house because you're hurtful, and this is not going the way I want it to go. And he said, no, something's off about this. He's been good. He's always been good. Oh, yeah. I mishandled his presence. Come back in. God, can I tell you again how good you are? He shows up, and it changes things forever. This is worship. In this, David got a glimpse of things that came thousands of years later, a revelation of Jesus, that he enthrones himself on the praises of his people, that God's presence is not just for those who are qualified, it's for everybody. He saw things about God that came through worship. Talk about the transformation that God wants to bring your family, that he wants to bring the city, that he wants to bring the nation. And the transformation that's going to come is through worship, that he's not only just going to change your mind in how you come to worship, he's going to reveal himself in worship. He's going to unlock things for you and for your future that you cannot get otherwise. He's going to give you strategies for business, for family, for marriage. He's going to give you dreams and ideas. He's going to give you problems to solve in the nation through hosting his presence. Let me show you who I am as you lift up my name in worship. This is the power of what we do and why we do it. I was reading a book recently called The Quest for the Radical Middle. And it's about the story 
the formation of the vineyard movement. It was written by a guy named Bill Jackson. And Bill Jackson discovers how the vineyard movement discovered, or he, I should say this, Bill Jackson describes how the vineyard movement discovered, quote-unquote, worship. This is what he says. He said, the most significant discovery was that worship wasn't for them at all, but a gift they gave to God. They learned that it didn't matter what they felt like. God was worthy and inhabited the praises of his people. And when they gave him his gift, not as the warm-up for the teaching, but as an end in itself, an interesting thing happened. God brought his presence and ministered to them. What an awesome time it was. You know what I find funny about this? It says that they discovered this. God didn't mandate it. He didn't give them a model and saying this is exactly what you must do. They discovered it. God didn't tell David to build this tabernacle. This was David's offering to God. And in it, he discovered the presence of God. Because God responded and said, this is where I will dwell forever. I think he's looking for people who will discover how beautiful he is through a revelation of worship. And once we discover how beautiful it is, we say, hey, 24 7 Three, six, five. I have to live a life that declares his praises because I can't live without his manifest presence. This is why we do what we do, people. If we're not here to gather in and around his presence that comes by way of extravagant worship, then what are we doing? We are the people of God, but the ark is with the enemies. It wasn't honored in the time of Saul, and David said, even though it be awkward and clumsy and messy and hurtful, i got to get the presence back no matter what it costs. My wife is upset with me because of how much I love Jesus, but you can stay over there because I love him this much. Extravagant worship. What an awesome time it was. And by the way, the vineyard movement, whether you like it or not, has changed the landscape of the church over the last 50 years. That you may not even attribute it to them, but what they discovered actually shifted the church. And we're living in the fruit of it now. You can start playing again. How awkward has he been sitting up here? No, you see, yeah, 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 totally awesome. John chapter 4, there's a woman in Samaria, Ben, you can come back, and guess what? We're going to give him extravagant worship today. We're going to do exactly this. And guess what? You're handcuffed now because whether you feel like it or not, he deserves it. It's the only thing that's going to transform your life, his manifest presence. And guess what? He's worthy of it whether you feel like it or not. So the heart of worship is to say, God, whether or not I feel like it, I'm going to shift my subjectivity to your objectivity, and I'm going to make my mind declare what is true, not what it feels. This is worship. God is going to manifest his presence in this place. As I was sitting there this morning, I had an aha moment like David saying, why would I not ask for all the money in the world to come to the church so that we can give him extravagant worship? Why would I not go and find a drummer to play so that we can just worship him for who he is? I mean it. 
Why would we not leverage the entire nation to say God deserves this? I don't care how bad your day was. He deserves it. Get over yourself. Oh, this is going to revolutionize worship in this city. It clicked for me. Where are my Brazilians at? Whoa. You came on a good day. I'm telling you, God's going to get what he deserves. Why? Because we've discovered that he deserves it. John chapter 4, Jesus is with a woman in Samaria. Just wait. Not that it matters, but. John chapter 4, Jesus is with a woman in Samaria, and he meets with this woman. He's got this divine appointment to go meet with her. In fact, he's not supposed to be in this place, but he knows that the Father's after something. So he goes and sits at this well, starts talking to this woman. Disciples are gone, and they're chatting. And it comes up, like he gives her a word of knowledge and says that you've had five husbands. And the one you're with is not your husband. And she says this to him. There you go. That's your cue. You got it? Yeah. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you, the Jews, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Is it the tabernacle of Moses or the tabernacle of David? Like, what is it? This is Jesus' response. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they, listen to this, are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must Worship in spirit and in truth. It hit me. They are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. He seeks worshipers. His heart is longing for people who will discover his goodness and attribute it to him. It doesn't say that he mandated it or forced it or handcuffed them like I just did to you. It says that his heart is longing for people to discover his goodness and give it back to him as a free will offering. My goodness, if we're going to do anything as a church, is to give him what he seeks. Not what I want, what he seeks. And so it means that I got to stand up here when I'm grumpy and I want to sleep and I'm going to lift my hands and say, God, you are good. Even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to do it. Why? Because it's what he seeks. In spirit and in truth. And his presence is going to change my life. It's going to change your life. It's going to heal your body. It's going to heal your mind. It's going to heal your marriage. It's going to transform our city. It's why we do what we do. For those who don't know him, walk in here and experience his presence. Get a glimpse of who he is and say, I got to worship him. He goes first. But he also is looking for a response. He seeks. 
I want to give him what he seeks. Pre-marriage counseling, we get this, we give out surveys and people answer the surveys. And one of the questions is this. Do you need to always feel in love for a successful marriage? And a lot of people put yes. What do you do when the feeling runs out? Sorry, I didn't say any names in this place. There was nobody in this room. What do you do when the feeling runs out? Do you follow that feeling? Well, wisdom says no. The world might say yes. Wisdom says no. Why? Because our feelings are deceptive. We know that if we follow it, it actually might compromise the thing that I actually truly love, yet I don't feel like I do. And that's why we get married. We say, no matter how I feel, I choose to love you. I choose covenant. Because if I followed my feelings, there might be someone else that walks my way 10 days from now, 10 years from now, that it feels better to love them, but I have chosen to love you. And I'm making the commitment for the rest of my life, no matter what comes or what happens, I will love you. So is it necessary to feel in love to have a successful marriage? Hell no. So that when feelings become deceptive, I can come back to a choice. And my feelings will follow my choices. So if the one that I love seeks worshipers, I will give him what he's seeking whether I feel like it or not because I've made a choice to love him and as a result I not only please his heart but I become transformed in the process when we started this community it was strictly obedience It's primarily, God, if this is what you're asking me to do, even though I'm in pain and I'm suffering and I don't want to do it, I'm going to do it because you told me to do it. It was all about obedience. It was all about sacrifice. God, exactly what Sam said, I'm going to lay all of this down because I fear going elsewhere. I want to be with you. And I know life outside of you sucks. So even though it's painful being where you've called me to be, I'm going to do it because I'm making the choice to obey you. I love Jesus, but I feared doing anything other than what he wanted. And I think that was actually good motivation in the moment. But as a result of obedience, as a result of saying, yes, I have encountered his goodness and his faithfulness. Can anybody agree? As a result of saying yes in obedience, I've encountered his goodness and his faithfulness. I could never for one day in my life for the rest of it deny how good and how faithful he is. I've seen too much. Oh, I wish you all could just like lift your hands and say amen. But now after encountering his goodness, I can't think of anything greater to do with my life 
than to call and gather people to honor and worship him. He tricked me. You can laugh. God tricked me. He knew exactly what he was doing. Okay, I'll take obedience from you. But in obedience, you're going to see how good and how gracious and how faithful I am. Your heart is going to transform. And at the end of it, I know what I'm going to get from you. And so you know what? God asked me now in my time, in my life, son, what do you want? Because I want to know what you want. I don't want you to just do what I want you to do, although I do. But I want to know what's in your heart. Because that's where your worship is going to come from. And so now, I cannot think of a greater thing to do with my life than to look at every single one of you in the eye and say, you should lay your life down to give him worship and be unashamed about it. Leverage everything that I have, everything that you have to give him what is due his name. To risk in faith so that his presence can come manifest amongst us. So that your healing in your mind might be found in the presence of God. Like that's my lane. I began with what he wanted. And now it's become what I want. Because what I want is to honor him. And that's what he was seeking the entire time. So his call on my life was his gift to me. But my joy-filled response to his call on my life is my gift to him. You have a gift to give God. You have something to offer him. It's the thing that he seeks. It's why he saved you so that you could be in communion with him. And communion with him is worship unto him. That he calls to worship you in spirit calls you to worship him in spirit and in truth I don't know about you but I want to give him sacrifices of praise I want to give him my life as an offering Ben you can come back up I want to lift my hands in praise because it's true not just because I feel like it and I'm going to let what's true reform what I feel Are you guys ready to worship? Joy-filled response to who he is. Are you ready to worship?